0: Deconstructionism. So it's a post postmodernism, And this movement, Deconstructionism, it's been recently amplified in the Christian church. So I kind of want to go through this because this has to do with absolute truth and the passage that we're going to be going through explains what absolute truth is. And you're going to see that as we go through. But It's a literary criticism, especially from some universally English and corporative literature departments, but it also is a spread to other areas of humanities and biblical studies. Deconstructionists' major premise derived from its overall postmodern stance is that texts have no intrinsic meaning. It's a problem. At least none of the recoverable in the case of ancient texts the Bible. The modern interpreter gives to the text whatever meaning seems appropriate to the social context of his or her own realm of discourse, whatever the realm of the original author may have been. So let me explain something about biblical interpretation. It's called hermeneutics, it's the analytical study of scripture. And it must be taken from an objective perspective. For example, the Bible was not written to you. It's not written to you. Because you're not from Philippi. You're not a first century Jew. right? Because we're not here in the first century. Um, you're not the people of Israel in 900 B.C. You're not from Colossae, Thessalonica. Nah. It's, but it's written for us. So when we interpret Scripture, it must be from the original text in the context in which it was written, by whom it was written. So if it was written from Paul to, say, Timothy, what we're going to go through, that's the context in the cultural context, in the religious context, in the linguistic uh, context, the historical context, the literary context, the genre. All that comes into play when it comes to biblical interpretation. So there is one interpretation of Scripture. So in a passage, you must interpret that one thing. Now, you may apply it in multiple ways, but there is one interpretation. So deconstructionists say, well, you know, this really doesn't mean this. We really don't need this. This is how I feel about the passage. Well, the biblical interpretation becomes an issue because then... God is not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and then this becomes just another text and it becomes worthless and meaningless. <clears throat> so, in saying that, the more extreme deconstructionists even argue that the original author may not have had any specific intention. Instead, the critical and sensitive reader must inquire what the author's subjective inner world was about who the audience may have been and what the reason for the particular style and discourse was. Ultimately, one must ask not what the text signifies, but how. We can go no further seeking a historical context, an original meaning, or an agreed upon interpretation is methodologically suspect. So. This is very important because we're going to talk about Scripture today and what Scripture is used for. And if Scripture is not absolute truth, then we have a huge, huge issue. That means, once again, this text becomes like any other text. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means nothing. So there becomes a lot of issues. But we're going to, obviously, if you know me, you know I'm going to give you an apologetic why we are to listen to Scripture and why it's the authority. So, turn with me with your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 through 17. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in, at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endure... And out of them all the Lord discovered, uh, delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that the child... And from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures. So when you're saying this to Timothy, they're mainly talking about the Old Testament and some of the New Testament that has been explained. We'll go through that later. But So which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now this is the, our main study. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice that encouragement is not in there. Although scripture may encourage you, it is not there to encourage you. It is specifically there for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction and in righteousness. So the man of God may be complete. Very important here that we understand that, what scripture is for. Now, in this passage, you see Paul, he presents his conduct as an example of faithful service to God. You see that in verses 10 to 13. And then he encourages Timothy to remain strong in the faith using God's gift of Scripture to minister effectively. And that's verses 14 to 17. This is possibly and probably the Apostle Paul's last letter. And this uh, this was actually a letter of encouragement. To Timothy, because typically in Pauline literature, you do see a lot of doctrinal truths. Him correcting a lot of people. Look at the, the epistles to the Corinthians. That's just correction. Stop being stupid because you're being stupid. You're not living a godly life. That, you know, sums it up. So our first point, I urge you to take notes, because as you've seen before, you'll see an outline. It's really simple. So our first scripture is inspired. So you see, it is being God breathed. Now, the verse that I'm uh, the the version I'm going to use in this, which I think is the best version for this passage specifically, is the NIV, the New International Version, because it does say it correctly, "All Scripture is God breathed." That's the word that's being used, and we're going to go through the word in a moment. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So specifically, all scripture is God-breathed. This is very little difference in the sense between every scripture, which the word says all scripture. So when it says every scripture in various um, texts, you can see it's emphasizing the individual portions. And in all scripture, it's emphasizing the composite whole, the former option is preferred because it fits the normal use of the word all and every. So every scripture means every individual portion of scripture. All scripture would refer to the Old Testament by implications also, and at least some of the New Testament writings, which by this time were already being considered as scripture. It's good for us to have a context of this, because you see this in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, 20 and 21. So knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Scripture was given to men by the Holy Spirit, and that's how you have all 66 books of the Bible. So it's originally from God, but it was used by men. And that's why you have different personalities within the Scripture. you look at all four Gospels, you see different personalities. Because you see the the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor. Matthew was a tax collector. Mark, his first name was John. John Mark was a little different. And they think it was really the writings of, of Peter or Paul. And then you have the Apostle John. Who actually wrote later than everybody else? And the Apostle John, he talks about the, the divine authority and the divinity of Jesus Christ himself. That's the entire theme. So you see him in his later life speaking about who Jesus is. And then later he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and then the book of Revelation. Which is the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ, not Paul. No, or not John, sorry. So now as we move to 2 Peter 3 15 and 16, it says, And consider that the long suffering of the Lord is salvation and also also, uh, as also being beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable, Paul twists to their own destruction as they do as the rest of the scripture. So his epistles, so you see our beloved brother Paul, wisdom in his epistles, rest of scriptures. Every time you see scriptures talking about the holy scriptures, so it's equivalent to the Old Testament scriptures. Now the word God for God breathes, theopnatos, So its meaning is asserting to the divine origin of Scripture. It shows no, uh, the manner of the ins- inspiration of Scripture, but rather its source. Since Paul stresses the divine origin and thus the authority of Scripture, he does not point to the human authors of Scripture as inspired people, but says that the writings themselves, the Scripture, which in the New Testament always refers to biblical writings, are words spoken or breathed. Out by God. Remember context? It's a big deal. <laughs> so let's go through some evidence of the Bible being consistent. I'm going to give you an apologetic the word. comes from apologia. It's to give a defense for the faith. So you have the Bible. It's 66 books. books it's written over a 2,000-year time period. About 40 different authors. Written over three different continents. Written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's kind of a big deal, too, because you have about 40 different authors, and a lot of them didn't know each other. But they have the same consistent theme. And you see this textual consistency. You have God's moral law consistently, man's rebellion against God, and God's plan for salvation. You see that through the Old Testament, and you see it through the New Testament. And you see it revealed in the person of Jesus Christ as The plan for salvation. Now, has God saved the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? Of course. You have the exilic period when they were exiled to Babylon. Right? And then you have the post-exilic period when they were allowed to come back. You have, even before that, you have the the enslavement in Egypt. And then who took them out of Egypt? Moses. Moses you see a constant of God's moral law, people rebelling against God and then God's always planned for salvation throughout the entire scripture. So you have the textual consistency throughout all that. So I'm giving you not the typical apologetics that you know most people do. I'm giving you some different things. So these are works of ancient work, uh, ancient uh, writers, right? So if you look all the way at the bottom, you see the New Testament was written about 50 to 95 A.D., earliest copy, copy, not original manuscript, copy is about 125 A.D., right? The time span in which things were written were about 25 years. There's over 25,000 manuscripts, copies of the originals. Now, the reason why this is important, if you look at Homer's Iliad, which is the next best in line, now this is an epic poem in 24 books traditionally attributed to the ancient Greek poet Homer. It takes uh, the Trojan War as its subject uh, through the Greek warrior Achilles is its primary focus. So Homer's Iliad, which is the second best, time span about 1,500 years. The earliest copy is 400 A.D., and when it was written, was about 900 B.C. You see a massive Difference there? But people look to this as like, "Oh, this is a solid ancient text. We know this happened. Why don't people believe in the New Testament? Because we have a 25-year time period. Homer's was 1,500 years. And we have over 25,000 manuscripts. Textual criticism. This is what's called textual criticism. And you look at all these things from antiquity these ancient manuscripts from all these ancient writings but the new testament trumps all of them so that's an apologetic biblical prophecy over 300 prophecies about jesus christ in the old testament that were fulfilled in the new testament so let me ask you a question if i won the lottery eight times in a row would you copy my numbers for the ninth time You're all, thank you. One true person right there. That that was truth right there. He's like, yeah, forget that. I'll I'll take that. So eight of the prophecies that Jesus uh, fulfilled from the Old Testament to the New Testament, just eight of them. The mathematical improbability is 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros. So this is saying... If I were to take silver dollars and stack them two feet high across the state of Texas and I were to paint one some random color and I take you, I blindfold you, put you in a helicopter, drop you somewhere in the state of Texas, spin you around a few times, the first one you pick up is that one I painted. I did this with a youth group one time. I said, all right, you know what? I'm going to put something randomly in the room. I'm going to blindfold one person. And this room was a lot smaller than this. I said, I want you to just walk wherever you are and pick up the object I placed down. They couldn't do it. Now imagine the state of Texas. That's the mathematical improbability, which becomes a what? An impossibility. It can't happen. This can't happen. Can't happen by chance. I'm going to use Isaiah 53, 2-12, and you see 12 prophecies right there. By the way, if you read Isaiah 52 and 53, you see just the person of Christ right there. And you see him fulfilled in Matthew 26, 27, Mark 15, 16, Luke 22, 23, and John 18 and 19. You see, man was rejected. Jesus was rejected. You see him as the man of sorrow. He lived a life of suffering. He was despised by others. Carried our sorrow. Was smitten and afflicted by God. Notice that. He was smitten and afflicted by God. Jesus was crucified. He was beaten, scourged, a crown of thorns put on his head. But he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? There was some type of disconnect. And he took the entire wrath of God upon himself for the sins of the entire world. So the physical punishment wasn't everything. There was a spiritual punishment that had to be paid. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? Which is actually mentioned in Psalm 22, which is written about 900 B.C. Now, the interesting thing about this, talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. In 519 B.C. is when crucifixion was actually created by the Persians. So this wasn't even a thing, and they actually wrote about it in Psalm 22. He was wounded for our sins suffered like a lamb, because he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. Died with the wicked, because he had two criminals next to him. Was sinless, even according to the Quran, he was sinless. Interesting, right? And prayed for others. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So, from verses 2 to 12, all these were fulfilled in all these different books of the Bible, and he's in the four Gospels. Now we go to the archaeological evidence. There's, And I gave you just a random one that I thought, because I wanted to give you some Old Testament and some New Testament stuff. The archaeological evidence, you have the excavation of Jericho, and you have the five cities described in Genesis 14.2, uh, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, and Bela. Now, the excavation in Jericho reveals that the walls of this city did fall, as described in the book of Joshua. Now, these five cities were thought to be mystical, or, or mythical, sorry. But ancient documents have found that list the cities as part of an ancient trade routes. So, I gave you some random apologetics about the Bible, to prove the existence of the Bible. Now, do you understand, if I were in a court of law right now, I can convict someone for murder with the the amount of evidence I have. Murder, seriously. But people want to deconstruct their faith because they don't believe the Bible's true. I'm a facts and figures, guys. I like numbers. What are the numbers? What are the facts? Don't you want to know the truth? Or do you want to do something that makes you feel good? Does feeling good always benefit you? No. How many of you like to go to work on Monday? No, just put your hands down. (laughs) Right? Work's not fun, right? But what does it do? It pays your bills. Or if you're going to school, do you want to go to class all the time? No. Do you want to write that paper? Not really. When you go to the gym and you work out, is it always pleasant? No. What is good, what is right, and what is truth? That's what we should be seeking, not what we think feels good. So, as we move on to the next point, Scripture is profitable, Back to verse 16. All scripture, and we're going to go back to the New King James version. We were in the NIV for a moment, and now we're going back to the New King James. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, Paul's words here reminded Timothy that because Scripture is inspired and infallible, it is also profitable. The Bible is not a collection of stories, fables, myths, or merely human ideas about God. It is not a human book. Through the Holy Spirit, God revealed his person and plan to certain believers who wrote down his message for his people. Notice it wasn't to his people, it was for his people. Now this process is known as inspiration. The writers wrote from their own personal, historical, and cultural contexts, although they also used their own minds, talents, language, and style, they wrote that God wanted them to write. Scripture is completely trustworthy because God was in control of its writings. Its words are entirely authoritative for our faith and lives. So now as we move, we go to doctrine. Other words, teaching. This has become a bad word, by the way. Doctrine, people don't like this. It's become a bad word in Christian circles because people don't like to be told they're wrong. Here's what 1 Timothy four six says: If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister. It doesn't say bad. It says a good minister. It's very much like imagine you had children and you let them do whatever they wanted. It would be chaos, wouldn't it? Hey, how about this? When you go to work, do you have to be there at a certain time? Imagine everyone just showed up whenever they wanted. That would be great, right? For you, <laughs> not for your employer. They wouldn't be in business that long. Imagine school. You did your assignments when you wanted to. Ah, eh, It's due the first week. I'll get it done the Eighth week. Why not? So it was Timothy's job to instruct the believers, because that would make him a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of the faith and of good doctrine, good teachings, which you have carefully followed. This was Timothy's primary job in the Church of Ephesus. So doctrine is the content and teaching of truth, which must flow from the cons- and be consistent with Scripture. If it is not consistent with Scripture, we get rid of it. By calling the God, the Bible God breathed, Paul is identifying its divine source, and by making its source of doctrine. He was reminding Timothy of its absolute authority. Doctrine that contradicted biblical authority. And biblical doctrine was to be rejected, corrected, or replaced by accurate teachings. There is a thing called absolute truth, right? And there's relativism, right? There's subjectivism, and there's objectivism. Every time you think of things from a subjective perspective, it, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's what's true. Now, are your feelings important? Yes, they are important. Are they the most important? No, they're not. Because once again, do you feel like going to work? Do you feel like going to class? Maybe not. But it's important that you do it. Here, when it comes to good doctrine, you have to know what is being said and why it's being said in the context in which it was said. So, doctrine. Now, reproof. Back to verse 16, you see, all Scripture is profitable for reproof. Another word for reproof is rebuke. People don't like to be rebuked. But here's what the book of Leviticus says. In chapter 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. And not bear sin because of him. uh, Reproof is rebuking those in sin. So, you know, when people say, Thou shalt not judge, it's talking about if you are in that same sin, you're not supposed to judge someone um, because you need to take the plank out of your own eye and forget about the speck in their eye. But do we judge? Are we to judge? There's a reason why you have to judge. You know why? Because you have to find out what's good doctrine if someone's living in sin. And as as believers in Christ, are you supposed to tell someone when they're living in sin? And why do you do that? What was that? Sanctification, Sanctification, but it's because you love them. That's really because you truly love them. So in the West, in a our Western self-esteem cultures, a pastoral rebuke may be a paradoxal and unwelcomed notion. Take it from a pastor. Now, is the role of the pastor to accept, affirm, and to encourage? Yes. So Scripture doesn't necessarily there to encourage you, but messages when a pastor preaches, he's to encourage uh, to an extent, and. When we talk to each other, we are to encourage each other. But Scripture is not for that. Now in the biblical outlook like Paul's, that stresses divine holiness and human imperfection, that need not only for acceptance, but also for the love that cares enough to confront when necessary and is obvious and will be welcomed at times by those who truly are seeking God. So when you are being rebuked, when someone's correcting you, you say thank you, because they care enough about you to do that. We need to be corrected consistently because we are imperfect. We are petulant children. We disobey God on a consistent basis. Now, the initial impact of true doctrine involves the confrontation of false teaching and understanding. Now, the offensiveness Of some who teach biblical truth may have to be excused. But the offensiveness of biblical truth to error and evil requires no apology. Scripture is the ultimate truth on earth. This is what we have. And it's what we refer to. Now we go to correction. So we now have all scripture is profitable for correction. So, number one is to provide complete presentation of the teaching where only part of the truth has been present, and they provide for the writing or for the right understanding. Sorry, I put writ understanding of the application where true doctrine may have been taught. But as not taking effect. So, helping people straighten out errors in the area of correction of the scripture has those two roles. And we are to help people and correct them. And you don't do it in a malicious way, like I'm holier than thou. I want to point that out because you're not. You're not holier than thou. None of us are. You know, I could say I'm the holiest person here, I have holes all through me. Paul says, I, the chief of sinners, you know, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament epistles. And he called himself the chief of sinners. <laughs> we are to correct people in a loving way. We are to rebuke them in a loving way. Sometimes it may sound harsh. That doesn't make it harsh. Because of the way you're receiving it. We have to listen to what people are saying and not necessarily how they say it. You know, most people look at tonality and body language before they actually listen to what someone's saying. That's a good understanding for the person saying it, but the person receiving it, you should listen to what they're saying, not how they're saying it. So, now let's move on to the instruction of righteousness. Righteousness. All scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness, showing people how to please and glorify God. The ideal setting for doctrine includes the kind of preparation that minimizes the need for later reproof or correction. The nature of scripture allows us to teach it confidently to our children and to learn from it uh, learn from it for ourselves. So we are to be instructed to be righteous because we are to imitate Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. As you hear in the song, he must, what, increase, and we must, what, decrease. More of him, less of us, so that we may be right before God. Now, you're made right before God when you have come to believe in him. In Jesus Christ, you're made right before him. But we're to live a holy life. There's too much of a problem with this. People don't like to hear that you need to live a holy life. You are called to live a holy life as a believer in Christ. Yes, you are. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Could you live carnally, like live against God? Yeah, you could do that. But you are called specifically and commanded to live a holy life. And you're used to read scripture, so you have doctrine, reproof, correction for instruction in righteousness. It's kind of hard to live a righteous life without reading. As we move to number three, <clears throat> scripture equips. Verse 17 says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. <clears throat> so Timothy here must never forget Scripture's purpose to equip him and all believers to do good. So Timothy carried a heavy responsibility in Ephesus. But through his faith and reliance in God's word, he was complete and thoroughly equipped. Now this means that he is he was capable of And proficient and able to meet all the duties and challenges. Now the believers should not study God's word simply to increase their knowledge. Because knowledge just puffs up. So it's not an intellectual exercise. It's not about a ton of deep theological thought. Now I do think theology is important. It's the study of God. It's It's a line of thinking. But it's not to just increase their knowledge or to prepare them to win arguments. I'll tell you a personal story. As a young when I first became a believer, I studied apologetics. You know what I wanted to do? Beat people in arguments. And now I teach apologetics in tenth grade and tell them not to try to beat them in an argument, but lead them to Christ. <laughs> Sometimes we gotta fall on our face and then say, hey, don't fall on your face. That's what God does. So as believers, we should study the Bible so that we know and will know how to do Christ's work in the world. Knowledge of God's word is not useful unless it strengthens our faith and leads us to do good. Now, where do you see that? As believers in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this goes back to, I think I said a little while ago, I said justification, right? You come to know Jesus Christ, just requires faith. There's no works involved, nothing. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. This is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Now, when you are in your, what is called, sanctification stage, it means you are set apart. You are learning to be more like Christ. This requires work. Reading the Bible and interpreting Bible, the Bible is not the easiest thing in the world. Trust me. There have been arguments for the last 2,000 years about doctrine. It is tough to do it. But God wants you to so you may be more like his son. So now as we're, we're going to move to our application. We're going to apply now. Inspiration and application. So you have doctrine. What basic truth that God wants me to know does this passage teach? Reproof. What error in judgment, understanding, or behavior might this passage be reproving in my life? Correction. How might this passage correct, bounce, or direct me? Training. What does this passage present and prepare for me for some future spiritual challenge? You notice it's not there to make you feel good. Here's how you apply this. You need to read so you may understand what this passage is trying to say. How can I change my character? Because you do change. You control, control your thoughts and your attitude. You control how you view things you do and you need to do that with proper doctrine and look to scripture and every time you read scripture here's a rule ready you should always be convicted you shouldn't read scripture like oh i'm an awesome dude man this is great yeah i'm like jesus yeah no is to change your life. W.N. Punchin said um, this wonderful quote. How marvelous. Now, this is I think this culminates this passage very well. How marvelous is the adaptation of scripture for the race for whom it was revealed. In its pages Every conceivable condition of the human experience is reflected as in a mirror. You can read that in uh, James chapter 1. In its words, every struggle for the heart can find appropriate and forceful expression. It is absolutely inexhaustible in its resources for the conveyance of the deepest feelings of the soul. It puts music into the speech of the tuneless one. And it rounds out the periods of the unlettered into an eloquence which no orator can (coughs) rival. It has martial odes to brace the warrior's courage and gainful proverbs to teach the merchant wisdom. All mental moods can represent themselves in its aptitude of words. It can translate the doubt of the perplexed. It can articulate the cry of the contrite. It fills the tongue of the joyous with carols and thankful gladness. And it gives sorrow words, lest grief that does not speak should whisper in the heart and bid it break. Happy we, my friends, who in all varieties of our religious lives... Have this copious manual divinely provided to our hand. Scripture will help you in every aspect of your lives. Whether you're married, whether you have children, whether you're working, whether you just lost somebody. Whether you're perplexed not knowing why you're here because you know the five big questions of everyone, right? Origin, where did I come from? Identity, who am I? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, what's the difference between good and evil? Destiny, where do I go after I die? Everyone has those five questions. And the Bible answers each and every one of them. Now here's a question, are you equipped? It's going to lead to our next two small group questions, but the whole of the Bible is God's inspired word. Because it's inspired and trustworthy, we should read it and apply it to our lives. Read it, interpret it, then apply it. The Bible is our standard for testing everything else that claims to be true. It is our safeguard against false teachings and our source of guidance for how we should live. It is our only source of knowledge and how we should could be saved. God wants to show you what is true and equip you to live for him. Now, here's our small group questions. I'm very direct. How often are you reading your Bible? And how well do you take correction? So break up into groups of five or six, and we'll answer those questions, and here are some scriptures that you can use.